Now, as I said, um, we are starting uh, a new series tonight in the Gospel of Mark. And you might be thinking, well, it wasn't that long ago uh, we were looking at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Much of that series was in the middle of COVID, but uh, that wasn't that long ago. And you might be tempted to question Uh, the benefit of looking at another gospel so soon. Because there is a tendency some people can have to sort of see the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as essentially the same. Uh, They're all telling us about the life of Jesus. And that's true. Uh, They are. Uh, But some people, and you, you may have got some of these on your shelves. Some people have attempted to uh, take the four Gospels and sort of smush them all together and join them all together so that we can read the whole of of Jesus's life story in kind of a chronological um, complete story. I guess there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's, It's an interesting thing to do. But there is a danger in doing that in sort of taking everything that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John says and sort of flattening it all out and putting it into one story. Because, at risk of stating the obvious, Matthew is not Mark. And Mark is not Luke. And Luke is not John. And there's a reason why God has given us four Gospels. Uh, Each of the four Gospels give us a different perspective on the life of Christ. Uh, Not contradictory messages, they're all speaking about the same person, Jesus Christ. Uh, But each of them have a slightly different angle which they are teaching us. And to simply flatten them out into one account is to lose the reason why Luke wrote his gospel or the reason Matthew wrote his gospel or why John chose to mention some miracles but not others or chose to mention this event but leave out another event which other gospels do record. Sometimes we can lose the message that the inspired author, whether that be Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, was seeking to tell us and lose the message which God himself, through them, was seeking to teach us. And what I'd like to do in the evenings, uh, over the next few weeks and months, is look at Mark's gospel and learn the message that God is giving us through Mark. Uh, What is it that Mark is seeking to teach us about Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus from Mark that we don't learn in the same way from Luke or John or Matthew? Uh, One of the reasons why we struggle to understand the Bible sometimes is because we're so busy um, coming to the Bible with our questions that we desperately want the answers to that we don't pause to listen to what the authors of Scripture are saying to us. Does that make sense? 
Sometimes we want to know the answer to this and this question, and we come to God's word with all these sorts of questions which kind of drown out what God is actually wanting to communicate to us. That's what I'd like to do, as I say, over the next few months. Just listen to what Mark has to say to us. More importantly, listen to what God has to say to us through Mark. So how does Mark open his gospel? Uh, What are the first opening words that Mark wants to tell us as he starts this account of Jesus' life? Well, we can read them, obviously, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a great deal in that one verse. Mark begins his gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, gospel simply means good news. Uh, That's what the word means. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, That's the best nutshell definition of the gospel that I know of. Uh, The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. And um, some scholars believe that the book of Mark was uh, originally uh, written in order to be heard rather than read as a book. So perhaps you can imagine uh, someone standing up to declare the gospel of Mark and they read those opening words as an announcement, as a title. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's like uh, the beginning of a great drama, uh, the beginning of a great story of who Jesus is and what he has done. And like any good drama... Uh, It's broken into three acts, uh, three sections in Mark's gospel. Again, we uh, don't always pick up on that because we read the uh, gospel and it's broken up into chapters and verses which weren't originally there, but we put them in for ease of reference. Uh, But Mark's gospel is broken into, if you like, three stages. Act 1 is from chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 8. Act 2 is from the middle of chapter 8 to chapter 10. And Act 3, the last, final act, is from chapter 10 to chapter 16. Act 1 is set in Galilee. Uh, That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry. Uh, He spent three years, approximately, uh, preaching. And most of that time was spent in Galilee, in the north of Israel. Uh, Act 2 is set on the journey down to Jerusalem. Uh, Christ's final journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. That is the setting of Act 2. And Act 3, the final act, is set in Jerusalem itself, where, of course, Jesus was betrayed and crucified and, of course, rose again from the debt. Uh, that's the structure of 
Mark. And it's helpful to know that because then we see how Mark is communicating to us the good news of Jesus Christ. Starting in Galilee, talking of the journey down to Jerusalem and closing with Christ's death and resurrection in Jerusalem. You might wonder, why do I go into that much detail? Uh, Well, it's interesting that when Peter uh, comes in the passage we read to preach the gospel to this uh, centurion Cornelius, he actually follows that exact same structure uh, as he preaches and as he shares the gospel with Cornelius and all his family. And uh, many scholars again believe that Mark's gospel is largely based off the eyewitness testimony of Peter. That's what the early church certainly believed, uh, that Peter lay behind Mark's gospel, because Mark himself was not an apostle. Uh, Mark's mentioned in the New Testament, but he was a traveling companion of Paul, and later uh, knew Peter. Uh, But he wasn't himself an apostle. But it seems that Peter was the apostle he knew best. And Peter's eyewitness account lies behind much of Mark's gospel. Mark mentions Peter proportionally more than any of the other gospels. Um, Mark mentions things that were going on in Peter's mind. Uh, He talks about Peter remembering certain things, which, of course, he wouldn't know unless he spoke to Peter. And again, some scholars believe that this little sermon that uh, Peter gives to Cornelius is kind of the Gospel of Mark in summary. Uh, If you want to know what the Gospel of Mark is all about in a few short verses, look at Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. Because this short sermon that Peter gives is actually a very good brief summary of what the whole Gospel of Mark teaches. And that being so, I want to just look at this sermon um, and just look at three or four points from it because they will be helpful for us as we come to look at Mark's Gospel in more detail uh, uh, over the next few months. And as we seek to understand what is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Mark mentions in the opening verse. And the first thing I just want to observe uh, from this sermon that Peter gave to this Gentile Cornelius is that Peter makes clear, as Mark does as well, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. Look at verses 34 and 35 of Acts 10. Uh, It says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Uh, Peter opens his sermon and he says, Now I see. That God shows no partiality, but his ear is open to everyone, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Um, To be clear, 
uh, when Peter says in verse 35 uh, that God shows no partiality in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Uh, he's not saying that as long as you fear God and do good, then you're good to go. You know, if you just do the right thing, then God will accept you. That's not Peter's point. Now, if that were the case, then God would never have bothered to send Peter to Cornelius in the first place. Now, you remember how the story started. Uh, Cornelius is fasting and he's praying, seeking God, and he sees an angel. And the angel says to him, God has heard your prayers. God has seen your fast. And go and send for Peter. And he will tell you what you need to do. Cornelius needed to hear the gospel. But the wonderful thing is that God heard his prayer even though he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile and he was a Roman at that. What Peter is saying here is that God's heart is open to anyone whose heart is open to him. Uh, There's that lovely verse in Chronicles, which I love to quote, which says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, seeking those to show, in essence, show his grace to. God is looking. Uh, God's looking out on all the earth to see anyone whose face is looking up to him, who's crying out to him, who wants mercy and grace from him. God's looking for such people. And he shows no partiality. He doesn't mind whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. All he wants is to see someone whose heart is open to him. Cornelius had a humble fear of God, and God in his grace sent him Peter to share the gospel, even though he was a Roman centurion. And that, in many ways, is the essence of the message of the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark was not written to Jews, or not exclusively to Jews. Um, many times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark clarifies certain things which a Gentile person, a non-Jew person, would not understand. Uh, he explains certain Jewish customs. Because Mark's gospel is not written to just a little subset. Mark's gospel is written to the whole world. Mark wants the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard by everyone. So Mark's gospel is for you this morning, whoever you are, whoever you are online as well. The gospel of Mark is for everyone. In fact, there's a story uh, in the middle of Mark's gospel of a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician, who comes to Jesus. And initially you'd think, well, what's Jesus got to do with this Canaanite woman? And she comes to him and wants, um, if I remember this story rightly, her son healed. And initially, Christ seems very cold and standoffish, but she persists. She persists in asking Christ to heal her son. And eventually, Jesus says, great is your faith, and he heals her child. And that's a picture of the whole of Mark's gospel. Christ is not just for the Jews. Christ is not just for a particular subset of humanity. He is for everyone who wants to listen. 
That's the first lesson from the Gospel of Mark and the first lesson from this sermon that Peter gives. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. There's a second message. And the second point is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of peace. It's a message of peace. And let me read from verse 36 to 38 of Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Do you notice how in that very mini summary of the, at least the beginning of the gospel, um, Peter follows the same pattern that Mark does. He says how Jesus, first of all, after the preaching of John the Baptist, uh, went about doing good. I love that little phrase. That's what Jesus did. He went about doing good, healing people, uh, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Uh, He says he was preaching Peace. That is a good summary of the first half of Mark's gospel. Jesus went around doing good, preaching peace, and releasing people who were under the oppression of the devil. Uh, Jesus did not come preaching a message of judgment. Uh, Jesus did not come declaring that God's wrath was going to be poured out on this whole world, at least not yet. Instead, Jesus came with a message saying that he did not come to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. In other words, he came proclaiming liberation, not bondage. He came proclaiming peace, not vengeance. And again, that's a wonderful summary of the Gospel of Mark, showing us how Jesus came with a beautiful message of peace. Uh, When people came to him for healing, uh, when people came to him for release from bondage, Christ graciously gave it to them. Uh, He granted not only that, but also the forgiveness of sins, as we'll come to in just a moment. Christ was a message of peace, That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's a message of peace. But it's important to understand the nature of the peace that Christ bore. Otherwise, otherwise you might be very disappointed with the peace that you get uh, from Jesus if you don't understand the kind of peace that Christ promised. And uh, to try and illustrate that, I heard a story Uh, about uh, a man who once sought uh, the perfect picture of peace. He wanted a painting or a picture that uh, perfectly expressed what peace was. And he looked around and couldn't find one that satisfied him. So he announced a contest to produce a piece of artwork that would perfectly encapsulate peace for all those who looked at it. And the challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere. And paintings arrived from far and wide. And finally, uh, there came a day of 
revelation when the artwork that had been chosen would be revealed. And uh, the judges uncovered one peaceful scene after another to claps and cheers, until eventually there were only two left, uh, two pictures covered up and veiled. And one of the judges pulled the cover from one of the two, and there was a hush that fell over the crowds. Uh, because the painting showed a mirror-smooth lake uh, which reflected lacy green uh, birches under the soft blue of the evening sky. And along the grassy shore, uh, a flock of sheep grazed undisturbed. And people thought, surely this is the winner. Uh, How better can you encapsulate what peace is than this beautiful, calm scene of this mirror-smooth lake. But then they uncovered the final painting and the crowd gasped in surprise because the picture showed a tumultuous waterfall cascading down a rugged, jagged, rocky precipice and the crowd could almost feel its cold, penetrating spray Uh, Stormy grey clouds threatened to explode with lightning, wind and rain. And in the midst of the thundering noise and bitter chill, a spindly tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the fall. One of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly seeking to experience its full power. People thought, how could this picture show peace? But as they looked closer they saw that a little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch. And the bird was content and undisturbed in her uh, stormy surroundings as she simply rested on her eggs. Her eyes were closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones. And she manifested peace that transcends all earthly turmoil and that picture won the prize you might think what was the point of that story the point is that second picture better describes the peace that Jesus offers than that first picture because so many people think that peace and security comes from the absence of danger Uh, from nice, smooth, peaceful surrounding, uh, nice, pleasant circumstances. But God never promises that. Uh, Jesus never promises that. Uh, Look through Mark's Gospel and you'll see that Christ rarely, if ever, experienced that for himself. But what Christ does promise is that in the midst of turmoil in the midst of the storm, in midst of the torrential waters, we can have peace. We can have security like that little bird sitting on that nest. We can rest secure and safe in Christ, regardless of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. True safety does not consist in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. And that's one of the chief lessons of the Gospel of Mark. 
that our peace doesn't rest in the changing circumstances of our lives, but it comes by trusting in Christ, by following him even when life gets tough. Uh, as Jesus himself put it in John's Gospel, in the world you will have much tribulation, but do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. That's a good summary of at least the middle part of Mark's Gospel. There is peace to be found in Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of peace. That leads to the third and last uh, point, the last, third and last description of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which Peter touches on in his sermon. Uh, we've seen that it's a Gospel for everyone. No one is excluded. Everyone can hear this wonderful good news. Uh, secondly, it's a gospel of peace. It's good news proclaiming peace to all those who trust in Christ. But third and lastly, we see that it's a gospel that has the power to forgive sins. Uh, look at verse 39 onwards. Uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter says, And we are witnesses of all things which Christ did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That word remission essentially means forgiveness. Peter says this is the message that we came to declare, that whoever calls upon Christ, whoever believes on him, will receive remission, forgiveness, washing of their sins. Do you know what the greatest weapon uh, Satan has against us is? Uh, it's not his mighty power that he has as a uh, created, originally created angel of God. Um, read the book of Job and you can see uh, some of the things that Satan is capable of. Uh, but none of those things, the whirlwind, the boils, uh, the sickness he brings upon Job, none of those things are his greatest weapon. Satan's greatest weapon against us is our own sin. Uh, the reason why it's his greatest weapon is because it's based in fact. Uh, we cannot deny that we have committed rebellion against God. Worse than that, God cannot deny that we've turned against him. So when Satan accuses us, there's nothing we can say to defend ourselves. And that's a hugely powerful weapon in the hand of Satan. He can say to God, look at him, look at her, look what they did, look at their lies, look at the times they've stolen, look at the times they've been greedy, look at the times they've lusted, look at the times they've gossiped, 
Uh, Look at the time that they've been bitter and twisted and look at all the ways in which they've not been what they should be. How can you show them grace? How can you show them love when all they deserve is judgment? And if God's going to be just, he can't simply ignore that accusation because God is a righteous judge. What would you think of a judge who had a criminal stand before him in the dock and he said, oh, you know what, I'm feeling, I'm feeling quite kind today. I'm feeling quite generous today and you can, just go, you can just go free and I'll let you off with a warning. There would be uproar in society because you cannot have a judge simply letting a criminal off when they are guilty. How much more true is that with the God of the universe? What would that say about a God who simply lets sin slide? It would make God a sinner himself, and that's impossible. That's why Satan's accusations against us are his most powerful weapon. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that Peter declares here and that Mark declares in his gospel shows us that God has, and Christ has wrestled that greatest weapon from Satan's hand because he took our sin and nailed it to his cross. Now, the climax of Mark's gospel is obviously the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's what everything in Mark's gospel is working up to, and that's because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that Christ accomplished because on that cross he took the punishment for our sin he as it were said yes we are guilty yes we've committed sin against God yes we deserve to be punished but I'm going to pay for it myself that's what Jesus did on the cross that's why the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is such good news. And you see how great that is. Uh, The gospel would not be a gospel at all if it merely said that God has decided to look look past our sin or to look over our sin or to sweep it under the carpet. Because we would always be worried, well, what if God's mind changes? What if God decides, actually, I will punish you after all? If God was to simply sweep our sin under the carpet, there would be no real security that he wouldn't bring it up again one day. But because he's dealt with it on the cross, for all those who trust in Christ, not only does that mean God can be merciful to us, it means that God would be unjust to punish us again. Do you see how that's so? If you're trusting in Christ this evening, then it would be unjust of God for you to spend a single second in hell. If you spent a single second in hell after trusting in Jesus Christ, you would have a just complaint against God because he would be taking the penalty twice. Do you remember what Jesus said as his last word on the cross? or nearly his last word, he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. 
And that word, as I've said often before, means paid in full. Jesus paid the punishment completely, so there is nothing left to pay for anyone who trusts in him. Not only have you been let off your punishment, your punishment has been been completely satisfied. God looks at your account, as it were, and he says, paid in full. Do you see what wonderful security that brings? What wonderful peace that brings? Your sin has already been paid for. It cannot be paid for again. That's why Jesus himself says, if you trust in him, if we trust in him, we have passed from death into life. Uh, Martin Luther uh, once said, and he often gave some quite um, graphic descriptions of his, uh, as it were, dealings, if I could say that word, with the devil. And apparently he was asked one time how he overcame the devil and his accusations in his life. And he replied, he said, uh, well, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. The devil, seeing the nail prints in the hands and the pierced side, takes flight immediately. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Christ has dealt with our biggest problem. Christ has taken away Satan's greatest weapon, so we do not need to fear him anymore. That's the gospel that Peter declared to Cornelius and Mark declares to us in his gospel. And trustfully, uh, as we look at the gospel of Mark in more detail, uh, we'll see in the different events and different teachings of Christ's life how he makes that more clear to us. Uh, But we'll leave it there for this evening. But as our last hymn, I felt there wasn't really a uh, better hymn we could sing than number 120, uh, which is a hymn which uh, praises God for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number 120, great is the gospel of our glorious God, where mercy met the anger of God's rod. A penalty was paid and pardon brought, and sinners lost at last to him were brought. So we'll stand to sing 120. <laughs>